good for you to be here this morning. Thank you for coming out. And, and, and God held the rain until you got inside. But guess what? You're probably going to get wet when you leave. You know, if I've learned anything through this series, and this is the last week in our If We're Honest, is that it's hard to be honest. It really is. It's difficult to be transparent. And I'm watching this video, and I realized one of the key words, which I'll probably forget to mention, um, the, the connection, was how transparent the Lord Jesus Christ was. And if he can be, we ought to be. And when we're transparent and real, it's then when God can reach down and minister to us and also use others to minister to us. But we've got to be willing to take the risk to be transparent. Be transparent. Well, you know, some of the great debates in my life have to do with food. Well, that, does that surprise you? I mean, again, uh, Jeremy Bennett and I are pretty good friends and uh, we share breakfast usually once a week. We've done it for almost six years. Can you believe that? We've got together, and we don't just eat breakfast. We talk about God and stuff, and, and some really cool things. But we just disagree on a couple of things. And one is grits. He, he insists that God has called him to put sugar on his grits. No, 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 no. Y'all can go ahead all you want to, but, but I'm just telling you, I've got a word of the Lord. And he said, you know, remember he said, he did not say you're the sugar of the earth. He said, you're the salt of the earth. And if he wanted sugar on grits, he'd have said so. You eat grits with salt and butter and pepper, and that's just it. That's all there is to it. Now, we'll never agree on that, um, me and him, and maybe some of you, but I'm just telling you it's true. And, and I've got a debate with my wife going on. You know, she tells me, and she's told me now for 42 years that we've been married, that somehow putting salt on watermelon makes it sweeter. Now I'm going now to myself, I'm going, how in the world can you put salt on something and make it sweet? And I've tried it. And I'm telling you, you know what I taste when I put salt on my watermelon? I taste salt. And y'all know I'm, I've got a fond affection for sugar. And again, if God had wanted salt on watermelon, he'd have put a salty watermelon out there, but he didn't do that. See, it doesn't go together. But she says, she says that adding the salt somehow works chemically and makes it sweeter. Now, you've got to be wondering what I'm talking about. Well, I'm talking about heaven. Y'all didn't get that? That wonderful song that Robin sang? See, the things here on this earth that are pretty difficult just makes heaven a little sweeter. The things that we go through here that overwhelm us are exactly what makes heaven a little sweeter. I love the middle of the song where it says there's no sickness and sorrow and pain there, that heaven's this wonderful place. And it's the things we go through in life that strengthen our faith, that help us to grow, and that help us appreciate eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was thinking, I said, you know, we've all had those moments of difficulty. It was a Sunday morning, and I was 20 years old. 20 years old. I had dressed for church and had not quite made it out the door yet when my mom went in to check on my dad and came screaming out, Dad's not breathing. I remember so well, I'm not sure why my older brother was there. He didn't live with us, but he was there that morning, and he and I went in and tried to do CPR on a very cold body. He was gone. And my world changed. 20 years old, and I found myself without a daddy. 
I was on my own. I was in the Air Force, but going home and dad was there. And for a 20-year-old, that was pretty overwhelming. Fast forward four years. Junie and I are married. I had I met her when dad died. But we're now in the, I'm in the Air Force and we're over in Germany. And uh, a knock comes on the door at 2 o'clock in the morning. It was one of the officers from my squadron saying, hey, you need to call the Red Cross. So I called the Red Cross, and they had patched me through to my sister-in-law who lived in Jacksonville, Florida. Just four years later, I was 24 years old, and she said, if you want to see your mama alive, you need to come right now. Mama alive? Last time I checked, she was okay. Well, we got home one day, and she opened her eyes and smiled at me, and the next day she is in heaven. 24 years old. I found myself an orphan at 24 years old. Judy, just four years later, we get a, we're out in Missouri this time, and a phone call comes, and, and her daddy's gone at 23 years old. Now her father's gone, and, and eight years later, seven years later, you know, she, when she was 31 years old, her mother's gone. And just in such a sh- short span of time, any hope for grandparents for our kids are totally erased. And we both find ourselves as orphans in this world. It's pretty overwhelming for a young couple. But you, you may have gone through something like that. And as I've journeyed 35 years as a pastor, I've seen more than my share of overwhelmedness. Like the time I was 32 years old, a very young pastor, we had celebrated a wonderful Easter service. And we were about to sit down to Easter dinner when the doorbell rang. And there was one of my friend deacons who was a little bit older than me. And he was crying and say, saying, Someone shot my daddy. Please come, Pastor. Someone shot my daddy. And we went down there and his daddy decided to stay home from church that day. And took his own life with a shotgun. Felt pretty overwhelmed that day, too, as well as the family. It wasn't too many years after that that the phone rang and that there had been an accident. And we went down to the emergency room at Union County Hospital. And one of our good friends there in the church, her husband and this daughter, was in an accident. And God chose to take that daughter home that day. And the doctor said, we're not sure your husband's going to live either. And I watched as she slid down that wall and collapsed on the floor. Oh, God, please, no. And we could go on and on. I saw Lynn Felton today, and, and I said, Lynn, I thought of you this morning because I thought of the time that a phone call came. And Kurt Felton, who was a giant of a man, and mass and in heart, the gentle giant, collapsed in their dining room. I can still see it in my mind to this day, him lying in between the living room and the kitchen. And I got there, and he was gone. And her world just imploded. Her world just fell apart. So suddenly, he was gone. 
And we could go on and on with our stories about how life is so overwhelming. A a grandchild doesn't take the right path. A marriage falls apart. A job where, where it seemed the career was so bright is all of a sudden gone. The doctor says two words, two phrases you don't want to ever hear in the same sentence. Cancer in stage four. And the word terminal comes out. Life is overwhelming. And I want to talk to you today, I want to share with you today about what do you do when life is overwhelming and all of us have stories that we could tell about when life is overwhelming. And what we do is we turn to Jesus. Now that almost sounds tinny and cheap. But because of who he is and was, it's anything but that. You see, one of the things that's, that's the most overlooked and undertaught about Jesus is his humanity. I, I, think, I think we're almost afraid if we make Jesus too human, that somehow that underrates him, under, underli- under, underlines his power as a savior. If, if somehow we, we recognize too much of his humanity, that he's not capable of being the savior. Because we wrestle, because we're human, we wrestle with the idea and the thought that Jesus Christ was 100% God and yet 100% human. And when we deprive Jesus of his humanity... We are depriving him of the power to speak into our hearts and say, I've walked where you've walked. And I'm grateful for a God that lives in heaven, that is in heaven. I'm grateful for a mighty, mighty God. Amen? But I am grateful today for a compassionate, tender-hearted Savior who's walked where I've walked. I want today to really take a close look at the humanity of Jesus. Because that is that humanity that speaks into our hearts when life is overwhelming. We want to start today in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It's a wonderful scripture. And again, as I studied for this message and prepared for this message, it really took on new life for me. Here's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15. It says, For we do not have, thankfully we do not have, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And what he's saying, if you flip that around the other way, he's saying we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. See, can you imagine, husbands, let me give you some advice. If your wife is still in childbearing years, let me give you some good advice. Can you imagine that a woman is in labor, active labor, and the husband leans down and says, Honey, you can do this. I know how you feel. Yeah. You might, if, you're gonna, if you really feel like you've got to say that, say it from about five feet. Because if she can get a hold of your throat, you're going down. You're going down. Imagine a young pastor. Been in the ministry just a few years, kind of like me, but had never had a child. And 
that pastor look in the eyes of some parents who lost a child. And that young pastor, out of an experience, saying something like, I know how you feel. He never could. He never could. So when the author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, that's such an important statement. It would be something if, if we had this Savior who, who never struggled, who never struggled, and said, I know how you feel. because yeah, Well, you're God. You have no idea how I feel. I, I love these guys running for governor. Both of them are billionaires. And they've been spending five weeks telling me how they identify with me, middle class. Oh, really? Really, JP? Really, Rauner? Mr. Mr. Billionaire? You really identify with me? Don't think so. If Jesus had never did what he did, if if he was somehow never that human side, he could never really say identify. But he can, and he did, and he does. And it's powerful. He, he goes on and says this. The author of Hebrews says this. We, we don't have this high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted, and we're, and we're no pun in words, we're tempted to simply apply that to temptation with sin. And, and yes, that's part of it, but it's bigger than that. The word is tested. Jesus went through multiple trials and testings during his life. He was tested in every way as we are, yet without failing, yet without sin. Because Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, as he journeyed through life, he struggled with some of the same issues that we do because he was God and human. And he did it and succeeded every single time. It's very encouraging to us because some of what Jesus did in his human side, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit, just like he asked us to do. He wants us to experience our victory, not through our own manifestation, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we want to step back to a place we've been before, and this time we're going to use the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, and we want to go to a place where Jesus struggled. And I want you to see in a new way, perhaps, the struggles of Christ in his humanity as he faced the biggest trial of his life. We find it in Mark 14 and verse number uh, 32. And the Bible says, and they, and they would be his disciples, and they, the 11, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. Now, this is one of those little words that are very important in the story that we've heard before, but you may not remember. And so maybe it's time to write it down. The word Gethsemane, of course, Gethsemane is a place, and it's an olive grove. It's an ancient olive grove. And it's one of the favorite places where Jesus would go and have prayer and be alone with his disciples. It was a place he enjoyed going. But the word Gethsemane, and this is the part you need to write down, literally means the press. The press. Apparently, there was an olive press in Gethsemane. And an olive press would be a large uh, trough, stone trough, and it have a large wheel in it. And they would take the olives and they would put them in this trough. And then with a donkey or with a couple of men, 
they would grab a hold of that giant wheel and push it around the circle. And as it pushed, it would pulverize the olives and the oil would run into a smaller trough around. So it's unique that Jesus goes on this night before his crucifixion. He goes to Gethsemane, the press, where just like us, he's going to be pressed. See, you know what I'm talking about. You've been through life, Charlie. You remember when your daddy died? That was hard, wasn't it? That was a press. That was a press. And, and, and Jesus is going into the press just like we've been through the press. And he could literally say, I'm identifying with what you've gone through because I've gone through the press. So Mark writes and says, he came to this place called Gethsemane, and here's the first thing I want you to grab a hold of. This, these are three things that will help us in the press. The Bible says, he said to his disciples, speaking to the general population of the eleven, okay, he, he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. The first thing I want you to know is this. We need people who will pray for us. We need people who pray for us. Now, I, I, I don't have, it's not directly mentioned in Scripture, but I think we all understand that he wasn't saying, sit here and twiddle your thumbs. Because Jesus was a man of prayer, and he's going to a station of prayer, I think it makes common spiritual sense to assume that he's expecting the boys to pray. So he says to them, sit here, okay? Sit here. And I think we assume that the idea is, I'm going to pray, so perhaps it would be a great idea if you prayed also. Jesus knew the value of having people pray for us. We need to learn the value of having people pray for us. Now, more than, more than give you about a two-minute lecture on how important it is that we need people to pray for us, I would like to spend that one minute and say this. That if someone comes up to you and says, would you pray for me, and you say yes, you really need to do that. Don't take your role as a prayer supporter lightly. Don't take your role as a prayer supporter lightly. When you say you're going to pray for someone, pray for that person. You, we under-evaluate the power of prayer. I will tell you this. When I recently went through this health deal, some of you told me you were praying for me. Some of you sent cards that you were praying for me. But I want to tell you, larger than that, Judy and I and my family felt your prayers. We knew you were praying for us. And there was power in that. There was comfort in that. So Jesus is fixing to step out into to a very dark place. And the first thing he does is look at the general population and says, Would you pray? So I'm encouraging you, one, when you are in a dark place, find people who will pray for you. And then, though, if you're asked to pray for someone, pray for them. There's power in prayer. Now, now it goes even further. In verse number 33, after he asked the general population to pray, he does something kind of unusual. He looks at his inner circle... Okay, which is Peter, James, and John. Those three, they were the ones that were closest to Jesus. 
Okay? And by the way, that was not because they deserved it. It was probably just a matter of grace. Let's just be honest. Because, you know, Peter was constantly messing up. So it wasn't like Peter deserved to be in the inner circle. He was just in the inner circle. All right? So he took with him Peter, James, and John. Okay? The inner circle. He went a little bit further with them. And then we see something starting to happen. The Bible says, in verse 33, he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now, I looked these words up in Strong's Dictionary to get the definition in the Greek, to get the real meaty meaning of what these words mean. Um, The words greatly distressed, particularly distressed, means, now listen, to be amazed, to be astounded, and to be alarmed. Well, alarmed is generally a negative word. Uh, Alarmed is usually, oh no, something bad's going to happen here. I get that one. But the word amazed and astounded can be a positive and a negative. We can be amazed at a good thing, or we can be amazed at a difficult thing. We can be astounded at a good thing, or we can be astounded at a difficult thing. Well, when Jesus uses this word, he was amazed and astounded in a negative way, in a hard way, not a negative way, in a hard way of what is about to happen to him. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. No pun intended. And then he says the words, and troubled. And troubled. To be in anguish. To be depressed. To be in anguish. And to be depressed. Strong said that of the three Greek words that are used in the Bible for depression, this is the strongest word. Now, I know we push back. We don't like even the idea that Jesus may be in anguish, and we don't like that that he was suffering uh, in this point of some kind of emotional depression. And you know why that's true? Because we think depression is weakness. We think of somehow that makes a person less than a person. You're wrong on both counts. See, we're human. We're human. And so was Jesus. And he is facing this immense trial. And Mark, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a glimpse of what he's facing and how he's responding. Now, now understand, his God side is fourth worst and focused. But he's wrestling with his human emotions. I don't know if you can grab a hold of that or not. It's kind of like the Trinity. It'll blow your mind. That's exactly what it is. And in verse 34, he says this. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, very sad. Again, deeply distressed. Even to death. These are the words of Jesus. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. In other words, the immense pressure he is feeling, the the sense of overwhelmingness that he is feeling would kill any other man. The emotional distress was so great it would kill another man. You want to know why it didn't kill Jesus? Because he had an appointment with that. That's why it didn't kill him. 
statement of love for him to die of emotional distress, a heart attack in the garden, but God made sure that didn't happen. But what would have killed another man didn't kill Jesus. But do you see it? There's that word I was talking about. Transparency. Transparency. Jesus had three men, Peter, James, and John. And he trusted them enough to be transparent with them. He didn't say these words to the other guys, but he had three men that he could trust. And he was transparent with them and said, I am so sorrowful, I could almost die. The second thing we really need is not only people praying for us, but we need friends. We need men and women in our lives who will help us, yes, with accountability, but whom we can be transparent. Who we can just be ourselves and share. Jesus needed those, and Jesus had those. I'm deeply sorry even to the point of death. So, he went a little further, and he fell on the ground. Do you grab that? Do you see that? He collapsed. He collapsed. The emotional stress and load was so great, his human body collapsed. He didn't slowly bow down. Hope I can get back up on his knees and say, Father, this is Jesus. He goes a little further and collapses on the ground. Now, are you seeing how human he is? This does not undermine who he is. See, oh, we do it to people. We, we do it. If a person's transplant, parents say they're struggling with something, somehow we, we want to dim, you know, diminish who they are. It's wrong and does not diminish who Jesus is. It strengthens who Jesus is. So he collapses on the ground. And, and then he says a prayer. And, and Mark first tells us what the prayer is, and then he quotes the prayer. He fell on the ground and prayed, in this verse 35, that if it were possible, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So Mark says the scope of Jesus' prayer in the garden was that if there's possible for this hour to pass, he would pray that it would. So then we get Mark gives us what he said. And he said, Abba, Father. You've heard this. Would you hear it again? This is too precious to gloss over. Keep it in mind... That a Jew would never approach God with this word. They, they wouldn't even say the name of God in the Old Testament. They, 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 when they wrote the name of God, they would intentionally leave a letter out so they wouldn't accidentally be too familiar with the name of God. But here comes Jesus. And he says, Abba, Father. For those who need a little comfort zone, dearest Father. For those who are from the South and are a little more familiar, dearest Daddy. It's not disrespectful. 
it's not too loose. Sorry, read too many commentaries. The term is that personal. Dearest father, dearest daddy. How beautiful is that? But here's what you need to know. Look, God gives you the right to come to him the same way. When you're in the press, when when the stone is about to roll you over and crush you, you need to know, yes, you need to have people praying for you. Yes, it would be great if you had some folks you could go to. I need to be transparent. I'm about to drown here. But you need to know you've got a heavenly father that you can crawl up into his lap and say, Dearest father, that's the God you've got. Don't miss that. When your, ma'am, when your husband has just died, sir, when your wife has just died, when, when the father, when the doctor says stage four cancer terminal, when you've lost your job, when your kids are going astray, when your grandkids are going astray, when you don't know what to do, you remember, you've got a father and you can crawl up with him and say, dearest father. And he accepts, if you know Christ as Savior, he accepts you and embraces you. You know, Paul said in Romans chapter 8, and I think it's verse 15, but Romans chapter 8, he says, We cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out, Dearest Dad. And this, you know what's so great about that? It came from a Pharisee, an ex Pharisee, a keeper of the law, who before Jesus could never imagine him saying, Abba, Father. But when Jesus came into his life, the relationship changed. And he could call God Father and Abba Father. You've got a Father who loves you. He cares that you're going through the press. He cares that you're being crushed. He cares that you're uncertain and needs certainty. He cares that your life seems hopeless, but he wants to bring hope. He cares. He cares. Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. And the prayer is direct. Now keep in mind, this is the human side. This is not the God side. It's the human. Jesus speaking in human terms. And he says, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. The cup. Can I, can I just go one more time over it with you? Just so you'll, you'll get it. In 1962, I think it was, a movie came out called The Longest Day. It was a story of the Allied invasion on June 6, 1944. And at the time, it was the, one of the grandest epic movies they ever made. Every star in Hollywood, it seemed like, had a role in it. It was done in black and white, and it was done in typical Hollywood drama. You know, you see a guy getting shot, and he would go, oh, and he'd throw his arms over his chest and roll over. It was pretty good for the day. But any man would tell you that was there on D-Day, June 6, 1944, would tell you that film didn't even come close to portraying the reality. In 1998, a movie came out called Saving Private Ryan. Maybe you remember that movie, Tom Hanks. And they filmed, the movie started on the first wave of D-Day. 
And the carnage was incredible. I will spare you the gory details. But men were losing arms and legs and half their bodies were just blown away. And here's what the veterans of World War II said. It's the most authentic thing we've ever seen describing D-Day. There's the Hollywood version and there's the real deal. I think too often we get the Hollywood version of Calvary. In our minds, we've got our little flag with a gold cross on it. Over our baptistries, we've got a nice, clean, pristine cross there. It disturbs us. Just like it disturbs us to think of the emotional stress that Jesus is under, the the authenticity of, of the cross disturbs us. It's too graphic. But when he said, remove this cup from me, physically, Jesus was facing the most horrible death there was. Now, I told you before, crucifixion was so bad, you could not crucify a Roman citizen. It was against the law to put a Roman citizen through the crucifixion. It reserved for aliens like the Jews. And you know, I just don't feel like I need to tell you all about it. You've seen it. You saw it in the Passion of the Christ. You've seen every time when we do a, a Palm Sunday Easter service, when Dave puts up on the screen the pictures of the mutilated body of Jesus. And Jesus knew fully what he was facing. He knew what his human body was fixing to go through. And if you've got any thought that somehow Jesus was immune from pain, get it out of your head. Every nerve of his body was human. And he was facing that. But that wasn't the worst of it. There's the spiritual side of this. Now listen one more time. If you can, listen to it for the first time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 21. He, God made him, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, To be sin for us. To be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus knew in a few hours as he was hanging on a Roman cross. Every sin of the world was going to be placed on him. And, in fact, if you hear what Paul says, it doesn't say it's going to be placed on him, that he's becoming that sin. That's what Paul says. So here we have God in the flesh, but we have God, and we have him on a Roman cross, and his body is mutilated, and the entire sins of every man, woman, and child who ever lived is on him. And because the wages of sin is death, and God's wrath is to be poured out on unforgiven sin, the very wrath of his Father is poured out on Jesus. The wrath of his Father is poured out on Jesus. And he knows this is coming. He knows exactly what's going to happen. The wrath of his Father. 
holy Jesus becoming sin. That's the spiritual implication. And then there's the emotional implication. You remember the story, don't you? Three o'clock in the afternoon, it gets dark. Real dark. It gets dark in the wine press. Ever notice that? You know, Brent's going to be preaching a message coming up in a week, next week called Joy in the Morning. And the darkest hours are right before dawn. Was Jesus is hanging, mutilated and naked before the world. On him is the sins of the entire world and his father's wrath is being poured out on him. Jesus cries out and says, My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Now watch. For the very first time, and the only time, and forever. Go that way, eternity past. Go this way, eternity future. For the first time, God the Father and God the Son are separated. God the Father turns His back On his own son. And it's never happened before. It will never happen again. And Jesus knew the emotional agony of being separated from his Abba Father. His dearest Father. So why did he say, if there's any way to remove this cup from me, remove this cup from me? Because of all of that and more. That's why. And again, he's speaking not on his spiritual side. He's speaking from his human side. And then Jesus gives us the greatest teaching on prayer. I wish we could learn this. He said, however, nevertheless... Not my will, but your will. Even in his human side, he said, God, this is not, a, this thing has never been about me, and it's not about me now. It's not about, never has been about me, and it's not about me now. It's not what I want that matters, it's what you want. That's the greatest lesson in prayer. When we can learn to start praying prayers that says, God, I trust you and I believe in you. You're smarter than me. You know better than me. It's what you want, not what I want anyway. That's a powerful lesson in prayer. Amen? Pretty difficult. Well... Luke, if you don't mind me skipping over to Luke, because I just think it's interesting. In Luke twenty two forty three, the Bible simply says, Dr. Luke says, an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. What a thoughtful God. What a wonderful God. Sends an angel, sends a messenger, right, when Jesus needs it most. And God may do that for us. Not necessarily an angel. He may send a scripture. He may send a friend. Sometimes it's just more than that. I love the, the first verse of uh, Israel, my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when my circumstances are screaming and going, you should be frustrated, you should be so afraid. And there's peace. 
Where does that come from? From God. Amen? From God. From God. Luke goes on and says in the next verse, Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Wow. Wow. Then you know what happens? Back in Mark 14, 42, Jesus goes back to the guys and says, Okay. All right, let's go. The scripture says, my betrayer, but I think we could say this to make it more meaningful, my enemy is at hand. My betrayer is at hand. He, he wrestled through this. He, he came to grips on his human side with all of this. And, and God sent an angel to strengthen him. He gets up from his knees, goes back to the guys and say, let's go. And God will do the same thing for us in our press. But you know what it all hinges on? Trusting God. Faith in your father. Faith. It doesn't depend on the doctors. It depends on God. Trust him. Trust him. Well, real quick. Let me slip over before I close and go to Psalm 23, 4. Yea, yes, even though I walk through the valley. Let, let me read the, the CSV version. I know the King James version. Even when I go through the darkest valley. Now, I don't know what your darkest valley is. I don't know if, I don't know if you've had one or you're going to have one, but you've got a darkest valley somewhere in your life. When I go through the darkest valley, David says, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, the rod of protection, the staff of keeping and guiding, comfort so you've got to come to a place where you believe when you're in the press, when, when you're overwhelmed, when it just seems like you're not going to make it. You've got to come to a place that when I come to that darkest valley, I believe God's with me. And did he say something like, I'll never leave you nor forsake you? Did he say that? You believe it? Do you believe it? Mary does. Anybody else believe it? I'll never leave you. I'll never leave you. Your rod and your staff, the protection, the keeping power, they comfort me. And I stumbled into, I got part of this. I got three, 322 a long time ago, but somehow I missed Lamentations 319. It is so good. Listen to it. The thought of my suffering and homelessness. What a unique word. The thought of my suffering and my homelessness is bitter beyond words. Is there a situation in your life, maybe when you lost your husband, maybe you lost your wife, you lost your job, when your health was gone and you knew it wasn't coming back? The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. Now listen, this, this, is, on, this is authenticity. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. I will never forget this awesome time, awful time, as I grieve over my loss. Now listen. Are you ready? Are you waiting for it? Listen, 21. Yet, which is as good as a button in the Bible, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. Let me put that all together. 
The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh every morning. You can't deny the bitter time. You can't say, well, that really didn't happen. It does. But I love it when, when Solomon says, yet still I dare to hope. I dare to hope when I remember this. His love is faithful as mercies are new. His love is faithful as mercies are new. His faithful love is unending mercy. See, Jesus is more than a fire escape. God is more than Santa Claus. He is God Almighty. And Jesus is King and Lord and worthy of our trust. So we should claim this. And we should believe this. So, is there a press in your past? Is there a press in your past? Are you grieving the loss of a baby? The loss of a child, the loss of a husband, the loss of a job, the loss of a dream, the loss of a vision. Is there a press in your past? Is there a press right now? Is there a press in your future? You can see it coming. Your mama is health is really bad. And you're close to your mama. And you know somewhere in the future it's coming. Is there a press in your future? Can we right now agree to trust God? Can we right now just agree that we have a high priest who can identify with our hurt and suffering and he will not leave us and he will not forsake us that we may have to go through the fire, that we may have to go through the tribulation, but he won't desert us. He won't abandon us. I mean, yeah, I know. We all agree we'd rather not go through the trial. But even God knows that's best for us. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. It's all true. So can we agree that we're going to trust Him today? I'd like to do something just a little bit different today. Something we don't do often enough. I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up, the worship team. I've asked Dave to come on up and just strum for a few minutes. And I want to invite something to happen. We're going to stand in just a moment. And if you're in the press right now, and you just like to come and and we're going to have a word of prayer, and you'd like to be prayed over, if that's okay, words to use, I'd like the privilege of just praying over you today. If you're in a press or you've been in a press, or you know someone who's in a press, I want to invite you to come and just stand. You can kneel if you like. Maybe you know someone who's in the press and you want to come and stand on their behalf. 
Stand for them. Maybe you know someone right now in this room and you know they're going through a difficult time and they need someone who will stand with them. Maybe today you want to stand for them and with them. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And as you feel led, if you want, just be, just come down for a time of prayer. And we're going to ask God to help you through the press, to help you through the difficulty. If, will there be people here who would be willing to pray for you and with you? If you feel so led, come right now. Come right now. Dwayne, I'm in a press. I've been in a press. Yeah, come on down. We haven't done this in too long. Now, now we're afraid to come. You come on down. If you know someone who needs prayer right now, you need to be down here right now. No guilt trips. No guilt trips. But you need to come. You may need to come put your hand on the shoulder of someone that you know they're going through right now. They're pressed. And they just need to feel your hand on their shoulder. They just need to know right now they don't stand by themselves. Yeah, you know, I got thinking we could tell stories all day. I thought my friend Lloyd, and we were talking about in the back of the room about when Robin died. How hard. There's so many stories in this congregation. So many stories. Presses. Presses. But we have a Savior who's been through it with us. And He knows. And He cares. Now I want you to know something. You don't have to be, there's nothing magic about coming down here. But if you're out there in that congregation still, you know this. There's people standing with you. And the Father is standing with you right now. Can we pray together? Father, in Jesus' precious name, I come to you. I am so thankful for a Savior, a high priest, the book of Hebrews says, that identifies with my weaknesses and my trials and my pain. Jesus, thank you for that. Help us not to be afraid of your humanity. Father, because it's in that humanity we find the compassion that we need as humans. God, I am grateful that I can say with total confidence and boldness based on the promises of your word that you never leave us nor forsake us. And you know the details of every person's life in this worship center today. You know the press that they're going through. And God, our prayer is succinct and on target. I am asking in Jesus' name for the faith to be big enough to trust you. In the circumstances that we are in right now, that our faith in you would be big enough to trust you. May Satan be defeated. May Satan be defeated. And Jesus, may you be magnified and be made big. Father, I thank you for these folks. So many of them I know personally. I know their journeys that they have walked. I know some of their pain and their suffering. I thank you for our church family, Father, where we are learning to be transparent. We are learning simply to accept one another as children of God. Help us continue that journey. Help us, Father, continue that journey. And as Horatio Spafford wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, no matter what, it is well with our soul. I ask your blessings and your peace 
on these dear people. And Jesus, I pray it in your precious name.